statistics can inform our understanding of the human world. I'm your host Jack Bridgewater and this season we're going to be looking into the study of elections. Often the assumption is that elections now are different. People vote for parties, politicians and outcomes that they wouldn't have in the past. Brexit and Trump are often held up as examples of this. But are they part of a wider trend or just anomalies? Today we talk to Professor Matthew Goodwin from the University of Kent who studies, amongst other things, populism and the rise of the far right. That will be the focus of our discussion today. I think this is a really interesting conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Hi Matt, thanks for thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, so today we're going to be talking about populism, that's going to be the main theme of the show. So if you could begin Matt by just talking a little bit about what it is you research um, and how, what kind of methods you use uh, in your research? Uh, sure. So I've been looking at these issues uh, really since my master's thesis uh, in 2003. Um, and I actually started by doing a large, what was effect, in effect a large scale literature review, uh, even at that time. You know, the, the study of you know, the populist right was very uh, was very much um, on the rise. It was a, a, a vibrant international literature. Um, I then carried that into uh, my PhD, where I was looking at uh, the individual motives for uh, right wing extremist actors activists, people who got involved in, in organizations using organizations in Britain uh, as a case study, but, but in terms of methodology, using life history interviewing, there'd been quite an influential book that had come out by Bert Landermans and Nonna Meyer in 2005 called Through the, Ma- Through the Magnifying Glass. And what I loved about that book was that in a, in a kind of literature that was basically getting very used to sort of downloading the latest wave of the uh, European Social Survey and running a quant, quant analysis of who votes for these parties. Well, there were researchers that were basically getting into the field, talking to people who were sort of inside the black box of these movements, why they were joining, what kinds of influence they were having, how were these organisations structured. And um, luckily for me at the time, they actually left the UK out of that that study. So it seemed an obvious uh, PhD uh, project. Uh, and then, you know, once I'd, once I'd completed that and, you know, that, that, which had involved around, well, probably easily upwards of 70 interviews, um, uh, all face to face. Um, I then went, went into a postdoc, uh, at Manchester, turning that, that research, uh, into a book and some articles, uh, and began to collaborate, uh, with others looking, um, looking more at, at radical right party uh, voters, um, what were their socio-demographic characteristics? What were their motivations? Um, what you know, to what extent were they driven by race, uh, sort of racism versus kind of xenophobia and um, immigration skepticism? 
did some more work on party members uh, when some leaked data was released and then um, began to look a little bit more at Euroscepticism in Britain because obviously our political climate was changing and also that literature was beginning to ask some interesting questions about what was behind rising Euroscepticism across the continent. What was the nature of that? Was it was it sort of rat, rat choice, cost benefit calculations? Was it identity, sociotropic concerns? And um, I started to look at that and in particular look at the rise of the UK Independence Party. Uh, and um, and then, you know, having answered what answered quite a few questions there. Um, began to began to move a little bit more broadly into uh, work on populism more generally, and I'm just finishing up a, a book on um, on on the rise of national populism in the West. So I think yeah, that's my own personal story. But when you look at that sort of literature, I think it's fair to say. I mean, I certainly view the, the beginnings of that research really as as beginning in 1988. With a book by uh, Klaus von Bain, an edited volume, um, which is considered somewhat of a classic in the field, but then, you know, through some pretty important contributions in the 90s by people like Herbert Kitschelt and um, Hans-Jörg Betts, Piero Ignazzi, um, and then basically you get to 2000, and that that field of research absolutely booms and also uh, becomes more methodologically uh, rigorous uh, and and sophisticated, you know, and starts to use a whole host of um, quantitative methods in particular, some experimental uh, work as well, uh, also becomes a little bit more interdisciplinary, um, drawing on social psych um, and sociology, social movement studies. And it begins to be a bit more of an interesting crossover. Um, you know, there are still, I think, problems in that literature that we might come on to. But um, in general, you know, it, it's now by far the most studied uh, party family in, in, in political science. And I suspect, um, that over the next five years with the already quite large literature on Trump, uh, in the US, I mean, I expect that, that populism studies, um, if you want to call it that is, is going to reach all new heights. So just to, just following up on, on something you've said in that then, um, it seems like it's quite an exciting time for, for a change in research methods in in how we approach populism. So do you think in the last few years there's really been a change in how we think about populism and how we try and measure it? Uh, you know, I think there has been a lot of change uh, in terms of how we look at populist voters. There's been a lot of good new work uh in particularly, uh, in particular quant work that's, that's looked at that topic that has begun to get into really, you know, complex modeling, structural equation modeling and, and experimental designs and really interesting, um, uh, pieces of work. I think some of the old debates are still very much there and perhaps a critic might say they've not moved on too much. You know, we're still debating what is populism. We're still having some pretty vigorous conceptual, uh, debates that, to be honest, I'm not entirely convinced to push things on all that much. We still, um, do not do anywhere near enough work on internal movement dynamics, supply side factors. We talk about them a lot, but there are very few researchers, um, really that actually 
get out of the office into the field and do kind of interesting ethnographic qualitative detailed work now there are exceptions obviously and there's a bit more work that's happening now on on party activism and party membership and um, you know, we, we're working uh, with colleagues at Kent, uh, Eric Garner Larson and myself, um, with Harold Clark, Paul Whiteley. We're looking at some, we're doing some work on on party membership at the moment, and I, I know some other colleagues in Scandinavia are looking at things around that too. So we're beginning to understand the sort of inner core of populism a little bit, but there's still nowhere near enough research on that. When you contrast it, for example, with take social movement studies and just the amount of work that has been done on progressive social movements of various types, you know, nuclear disarmament, environmentalism, civil rights, women's rights, you name it, you know, the internal movement dynamics are studied left to right and up and down. When it comes to populism, you know, we're great at debating what is it and we're great at sort of looking at, you know, who votes for it and why, but we're not so great at actually getting inside those movements and trying to understand what is it that makes them tick? What keeps them together? Why do people join? Why do some people leave? What are the you know, collective action frames, the motivational vocabularies that are keeping these movements going? And I think, you know, the, the literature has also been kind of dealing with the fact that all of this has been growing as, you know, the actual real world topic, if you like, has been booming as people have been studying it. Um, you know, and I, I think that's been that's been interesting. Um, sort of seeing people, you know, study, you know, well, what is the Freedom Party doing in coalition government, right? So for the first time in the history of populism studies, really, we, you know, we've we had a few cases in the 90s, but now, you know, you, the 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 study of what populists do in power is actually, I think, um, developing quite quickly and is far more mature than it was when, you know. You're looking at, say, I don't know what the Labour Nord did in, you know, the early 90s. So I think the there are avenues that are opening up that might not have been there for PhD students and postdocs in the in the 90s or perhaps even even so much in the early 2000s. Um, you know, and I suspect that Trump, as I said earlier, I think the Trump presidency will add to that. But there is a risk. And I do think actually this is an important point. There is a risk in populism studies, which I noticed at the American Political Science Association conference uh, a year or so ago which is that the American scholars and the European scholars may well find themselves developing two parallel literatures. I think that would be incredibly unfortunate. I think the 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 goal uh, should really be to try and integrate our, our findings and insights and trying to compare as much as possible. And I didn't see much of that at the, the APSA conference. I saw a lot of um, American exceptionalism, if you want to put it like that. I didn't see much engagement with a literature that's 20, 30 years older, and that's a shame. But we see, I mean, that's an interesting point, Matt, because we see that um, that problem with, say, the literature on partisanship as well, you know, obviously a very big literature within political science, but there's really a divide between European literature and American literature that I think has probably never been bridged, and it's interesting to hear that that's maybe happening in you know, the study of populism as well. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, you know, there are, I think obviously a lot of American political scientists, you know, coming out of, um, you know, the old Michigan tradition and so on have always felt that, and it's partly is reflects the debates in political science. I think they've always felt that Europe is perhaps a bit regional, you know, not, not necessarily, um, you know, perhaps as important. And, 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 you know, as a consequence, I think a lot of people now are viewing, say, the Trump presidency as being a byproduct of, you know, America's long and, 
difficult relationship with race and 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 viewing it as as a byproduct of factors that are that are fairly unique. But of course, you know, as we're now discovering. Uh, a year and a bit on from Trump winning the election, well, it's a pretty consistent story of what we see in Europe. I mean, when you boil it down, the drivers, the demographics, the 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 underlying um, you know broader discussion, even the local context, ethnic uh, shifts, and so on, it's a very very consistent story. I think with what we would expect to have found based on the research in Europe. So I think the the, the challenge for populism studies is is now to try and actually bridge bridge that, um, do more comparative work and also to to begin to, you know, look a lot more seriously at things like movement dynamics and the supply side and try and look um look in a uh, try and be as innovative and methodologically mm-hmm. innovative as possible. It'd be good to talk a little bit about um comparisons between Europe and, and America and, and recent examples of populism. But before we go on to that, I, I want to um just ask the kind of age old question um that, what is you know, I, one, yeah yeah that i would encourage readers obviously to go and read your upcoming book but before we move on any further could you just give me uh you know a quick soundbite of you know what is populism yeah i mean this is a obviously i mean this is a debate that will never ever end uh and it's something that my third years at kent who do my my third year module on the radical right are always uh kind of uh slightly taken aback by how contested some of the some of the literature uh, really is on this. I mean, let me tell you, my, one of my favorite writers on, on this issue is Margaret Canavan. I think she's, she's brilliant. And I would advise anybody who's interested in getting into this literature or certainly reading it, beginning to get into it, to look at, uh, her 1998, 99, uh, article in political studies, Two Faces of Populism, really good article where Canavan makes the point actually that, you know, when you boil populism down to its core, and this, I think, also feeds into the debate that we're having about Brexit and Trump. Is that populism, by its nature, thrives off of a uh, enduring tension within liberal democracy between what you might call a more pragmatic, rational choice, bureaucratic style of politics, which I think had a lot of overlaps with the Remain campaign, very rational, very cost benefit, very technocratic, very unemotional very dry. And on the other hand, a more redemptive vision of democracy that uh, views politics as bringing the people salvation, bringing them closer to decision making, um, being far more emotional, being far more passionate. And of course, the democracy can never fully satisfy those two competing factions and competing wings. So there will always be, I mean, in the words of Canavan, there will always be room for populism, which becomes something like a shadow. hanging over uh, democracy uh, as it continue, continually evolves. And I think, you know, that points to the fact that, you know, we've had very sensationalist, alarmist debates about what's happening in the West. But, you know, once you get into this literature, once you read, a, you know, you look at the old, what I would consider to be the classic stuff on this, you know, Seymour Lipset, Earl Raab, for example, some of the early work in the 1950s, 1960s, Richard Hofstadter and others, you know, the populist tradition in both the West and Europe is long, is rich, is entrenched, uh, certainly is unlikely to go anywhere anytime soon. Um, I think that speaks to Canavan's point, because there will always be people who are looking for a political movement that claims to speak on behalf of the good uh, people versus the corrupt, distant and um, perhaps at times uh, evil elite. 
there will always be a movement that wants to speak for what it views as the largely ethnically homogenous community against perceived threatening outsiders. And there will always be uh, room for uh, movements that uh, talk in very abstract terms um, about the voice of the people and giving them a much greater sense of agency at a time when political institutions are becoming increasingly complex, increasingly multi-layered, increasingly global um, or transnational. Uh, so if anything, you know, I mean, my line on this has been quite clear is that I, I think if anything, you know, the potential for populism will actually expand, not not decrease as we go forward. So how how do we bridge then what is, you know, happening on the left, maybe with what is happening on the right? I think maybe a question that people would have is populism can be used to describe both Corbyn in the UK and Trump in the US. Now, how, how do we what are, what are the similarities there? Well, they're similar in 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 one sense in that they are both claiming in different ways that the. Econ- current economic settlement is not protecting or advancing the interests of the broader uh, national group. Now, Corbyn doesn't view that national group in primarily an ethnic uh, sense. Um, and you know, most populists on the right, I think, and also probably including Trump, would would view that more uh, not not exclusively, but would 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 view that more along an ethnic uh, line. Um, but also, I think it's, you know, fair to say that this is perhaps is a bit more of a live debate within the literature that one of the interesting things about the clash between the populist right and social democrats or socialists like Corbyn is that I think now you're finding the populist right outflank the left on two fronts. Now, one is Trump says, Things about immigration and cultural identity that, say, Bernie Sanders would never say or, or Jeremy Corbyn would never say because, you know, they are in effect universalistic. They put a bigger focus on human equality, the fundamental principle of human equality, and they don't share the idea that the national uh, group should be uh, given preference over uh, minorities, immigrants or refugees when it comes to, for example, the distribution of welfare or access to public services or, or whatever it is. But, uh, of course, the tension they face at the same time, both Sanders and Corbyn, is that there are a significant number of people within their own camp, working class, blue collar voters who are instinctively socially conservative and who share those concerns over those issues. So about Eight million people who voted for Obama in 2012 went over to Trump in in 2016 and they were mainly white Americans, but they felt instinctively anxious about immigration and ethnic change, as scholars like John Size have shown. So there has always been that tension. And of course, in Europe, we've seen workers go go across to the populist right in quite a significant to quite a significant degree. But on the second dimension, the economic dimension, see, this is what I think is interesting in terms of what's happening now. The assumption on much of the left was that, well, they could win back those workers or they could fend off the populist right by turning up their rhetoric on economic redistribution and trying to increase the salience of economic issues. And the problem at the moment, of course, is that in many European states, and of course Trump is part of this, you now get populists who are effectively diluting the ability of the left to do that by sounding more protectionist, 
um, by sounding uh, more leftist on the economy. So you've got the Swedish Sweden Democrats saying, you know, um, don't choose immigration, choose welfare. You've got Marine Le Pen saying, you know, savage globalization is not good for domestic French workers. You've got Trump saying, let's roll back free trade. So I actually think there's an interesting dynamic going on now where on the one hand, the left's getting outflanked on issues like immigration, Islam and refugees because they're more salient and the left has struggled to have to, to, to come up with a, a meaningful, um, compelling message or reply on those issues. But on another dimension, I actually think the left over time is going to find itself squeezed or at least neutralized by this um, repositioning among some of the populist right parties on those on those flanks. So, you know, when people, me, my students and I often used to debate, you know, would Bernie Sanders have beaten Donald Trump? My own personal view is he wouldn't because he wouldn't have been able to match that message on those two flanks. So he wouldn't have been, he, on the one hand, he would have been able to mobilize a core democratic base on the economic dimension, but he would have lost, still lost those, those, those workers, uh, and those, uh, uh, Democrats and, and also a lot of the mainstream Republicans. Uh, on the identity axis, because, you know, ultimately those concerns over migration and identity are not rooted in uh, in objective economic concerns. And this is obviously one of the big miscalculations and a personal view that the left has made uh, over recent decades. And, and Sanders, of course, the other point to make there, I think, is probably wouldn't have brought back the the black American voters that um, Clinton ultimately lost. Um, well, Sanders may have may have increased turnout, which perhaps could have made a difference. But, um, you know, the Sanders would Sanders was also basically a socialist. And um, there is a long legacy in American politics uh, uh, of, of 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 socialism and big state government being opposed quite vigorously yeah. by mainstream uh, Republicans and some Democrats. And so, you know, I buy the line that Sanders might have boosted turnout among African-Americans, but I think he might have also scared the jeebers out of uh, other groups in American society who may well have turned out to an even greater extent. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, so. To kind of round off the, the the conversation, then what I would like to do is ask you a few devil's advocate questions, um, which I'm sure, and I see on your Twitter feed, you get a lot of people uh, effectively saying, you know, so what to you. Um, so if I could just add, add, ask a few of these kind of devil's advocate type questions. So, firstly, you know, politics changes a lot, and movements, you know, come and come and go. One thing I would kind of ask of you is, you know, could it not just be a coincidence that things such as Trump and Brexit are happening at the same time? And is it perhaps a problem that we're trying to build a grand narrative to bridge these two events, whereas perhaps they are not related to the same thing? How would you kind of answer answer that? Well, uh, well, I mean, I think it's certainly possible. It's unlikely in my, uh, in my view, but, uh, it's, it's certainly possible. Um, look, I take a very broad view, and this is partly what the book that I'm just finishing is, is doing, is I take a step back and look at the broad macro picture. And if you look at party systems in the West in general, they are experiencing quite similar, um, political, uh, and social and economic wins. Not all of them. Eastern Europe's a little bit different, but in general, 
you take a step back and you look at the broad view, they're all experiencing uh, increased uh, immigration uh, and ethnic change. They're all experiencing um, increased public concern over uh, relative deprivation um, and le uh, uh, levels of distrust in established institutions. And they are also experiencing what you could loosely term de-alignment and larger numbers of voters uh, feeling less strongly attached to to the mainstream. Um, and also on the supply side, they're dealing with more articulate, sophisticated um, populist campaigners that are not like the populists of the 50s and the 60s, but are more adept at mobilizing the same groups in society, a con an alliance of traditional Republicans or traditional social conservatives and blue collar workers. So my point is, when you take a step back and look at the fundamentals, actually, there's a lot of similarities between these movements. And, you know, any, you know, when you're dealing with percentage points of, you know, 52 percent believe or, you know, um, the fact that, you know, the, the dynamics of the Electoral College, whereby Clinton can win the popular vote, but, but still lose the election, you know, anything could happen. Right. But we would still we would still have been faced with a very strong uh, vote for Donald Trump. We'd still have been faced with the fact that he'd taken over the Republican machine from the outside. We'd, we're still left with the fact that Marine Le Pen polled one in three votes in the second round of the presidential election. And we're still faced with the fact that across almost every, well, across a large number of European party systems, um, populist, populist parties on the left and the right, but in, in particular on the right are achieving election results that you just really wouldn't have seen in in earlier years you know to go back to the literature when i was doing my phd there was a there was an unwritten law that you never have successful populist parties in britain sweden germany and the netherlands I and mean, that was basically the unwritten law they you'd always have chapters at the end of edited volumes that would explain you know well why not in sweden why not in britain uh, you know now if you look at how those four nation states have developed since 2000 you know the picture obviously is 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 very different. So I think that uh, at broad level, Western West the West political systems are experiencing broadly similar structural shifts uh, that are uh, taking place. The rise of new uh, social cleavages in society that are cross cutting, or depending who you believe, perhaps replacing uh, the traditional left right divide and that the value conflicts in society between post materialists and materialists are now really beginning to, to, uh, be, be highly politicized. And so I, I, I think there are lots of points of similarity. Okay, great. And I would also recommend you all to read Matt's book on populism, which will give you a longer answer than we had in the podcast on the question of what is populism. And that is called national populism. The Revolt Against Liberal Democracy, and that is coming out in October on Penguin, so I'd recommend you all to buy that. This has been How to Win Arguments with Numbers, which is a production by the QSTEP Centre at the University of Kent. Thanks again to Professor Matthew Goodwin for coming on the show. Next week, we look at electoral dealignment. Why don't people vote for the same parties that they used to? And do political parties have less of an influence now than ever?